Uh, today we'll be in the book of Isaiah, so turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 40. But we'll also, a little bit later, not only look at Isaiah, but uh, Daniel and Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And so, in some respects, we're looking at Jesus through the Old Testament. And of course, we see Jesus in the Old Testament. This week I had David Limbaugh on, and one of his earlier books was called The Emmaus Code, where we see Jesus in the Old Testament. His latest book is about the story of Paul, and it really paralleled very much what we talked about in terms of the book of Acts. So we're going to go through that first, and then at the end, I thought that since tomorrow is early voting, we might cover some of the questions people always ask about where can I get information about uh, who is running, what they stand for, and all those kinds of things. And so I was um, unaware that we were going to do Citizenship Weekend, so if you haven't already gone to the table back there, this was put together by the Cultural Impact Team, and so we'll talk about some of that material just as well a little bit later. But let's get into Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to cover the entire chapter, so I won't read all the chapter. I'll pick out particular segments, but as we go through this, we're going to see that here, after looking at many of these issues over the last couple of weeks, that God, in a sense, is giving his people another chance. And here we learn about how God reveals his glory. We're going to see how God keeps his promises and really talks about the fact that there is a future for them even in the midst of some judgment that is coming. And it's really kind of a message of hope, which we certainly need every time. And the idea that uh, we will be able to reflect upon God's greatness and certainly as we in the New Testament live uh, by Christ's power and for his glory, we can learn some of that by looking at the Old Testament. So uh, turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 40. First five verses are part of, if you will, almost a song. And we can see that it talks about comfort in verse 1, speaking tenderly to Jerusalem. But probably the most famous section in this first part is in verse 3. A voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley should be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And of course we know the implication of that because this, of course, actually focuses on John the Baptist. And so now when we start with chapter 40 and for the next few weeks when we're in Isaiah, we see that we're in a new section in the book of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 66. And here we see kind of, if you can see on the screen, the repeated development of our sin and our sinful rebellion and God's judgment and those kinds of things. But even in the midst of that, if you will, dark message, we have a declaration of Christ's coming, a declaration of God's coming glory, a future restoration of the people, which we see in verse 1. And then, of course, we have this comfort for those who are a broken people, because they, of course, are concerned about being in exile. But here, if nothing else, the illustration here is it's not for a discipline unto judgment, but a discipline, if nothing else, to restoration. And since in the sanctuary, we're going through the book of Hebrews right now. Um, it's interesting that uh, we even had an uh, unintended correlation, if you will, between Jared Stevens' message where he talked about Hebrews 12. But here we see in Hebrews 12 also this idea of restoration. The discipline may seem difficult, but it is for our restoration. And so again, this uh, exile was not to, in a sense, destroy the people of Israel, but actually to provide correction. 
And one of the things I thought was kind of interesting, I just read from verse 3 here, along the way, for those of you that have never been to Israel, this is going to be a little bit like a tour guide here, because occasionally I'm going to remind you of how these words affected those individuals living there. And, of course, it talks about a messenger who one day declared the time of restoration and peace. Of course, we know that is John the Baptist. But here, look at this idea of a desert, a highway, a straight path. This is, I think, if you can see it pretty well, just an illustration that when you live in a region that looks like this, can you imagine trying to navigate this on a daily basis? You know, you get up in the morning, you say, okay, and I, I have to go make my way down to find water. Maybe down in En Gedi, for example, is where there's a spring, or other places where there might be springs. It's just a reminder that when we see this story about make straight our paths, we live in Dallas right now, where it's pretty straight, right? You know? Every once in a while it turns, because that's where there was a farm, and so they make the road go turn. But in most cases, we take for granted being in flat land. But just think about how that must have affected them in terms of having a flat area. So I thought that was kind of interesting, if nothing else. And of course, if you're taking some notes, you might want to put down, here we see in Isaiah 40, uh, the prediction of John the Baptist. And then for those of you that want to see the fulfillment of this, which is helpful if you're talking to, say, an Orthodox Jewish believer. You know, I sometimes want to equip you with your, uh, put another tool in your evangelism toolbox, another tool in your apologetics toolbox. Here we see every one of the New Testament writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, refer back to this particular prophecy, which they say was fulfilled in the life of John the Baptist. So just gives you some of those links there as well. And John the Baptist, of course, prepared the way for Jesus. Behold, what is he said? The Lamb of God. And then, of course, preaching baptism of repentance and all of the rest, which, again, just was hearkening back to this passage we're looking at today in Isaiah 40. And then also we see that Jesus reveals, because we're going to see in just a minute here, this idea of glory. And you can see that also reiterated by John in chapter 1 and then picks it up again in chapter 17 of the Gospel of John. So, again, I, we put those up there, even if you don't have a chance to write them all down. Sometimes I know we go through this quickly enough that you get writer's cramp. The good news is it's all there on the website, PrestonwoodExamine.org. And if that would be helpful to you as you talk to a Jewish believer or just a skeptic that says, why should I believe the Bible? You say, well, because we have prophecies written down in the Old Testament, literally fulfilled in the New Testament. Sometimes in the person of Jesus Christ, more than 60 different categories of prophecies fulfilled in the life of Christ. In this case, prophecies which are fulfilled in the life of John the Baptist. Let me keep moving, though, because the next section is one that we begin to see uh, some uh, very famous passages as well. And here it talks about the voice crying, and what shall I cry? All flesh is like grass, verse 6. But then jump down a little bit further. Here it says in verse 8, grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So here is just a reminder that even in their world, 
the grass eventually turns brown. You wouldn't know it right now. We were telling our friend from Oregon, it's usually not this green around here by October. It's starting to fade a little bit, but all this rain is really green, but we know it will indeed fade. And so here, um, Isaiah talks about just as we see the grass in the Judean wilderness begin to fade, and we recognize that all flesh will fade. Yes, even we're getting older. Uh, Day by day, the word of of the Lord will stand forever. And so again, this is this idea of comfort and peace with now which is kind of the second stanza of this song. And along with this passage and this message of restoration, we see him uh, talking about the weakness of humanity, which we see, of course, in verse uh, uh, 6 and even a little bit in 7. Flesh is like grass. And again, our response then is in weakness and desperation to depend on those things which are permanent. And certainly we live each day as those who cannot hope in our own strength, but obviously here it's the idea that the word of the Lord will last forever. Again, for you some, taking some notes, you might go and write down First Peter chapter 1, because Peter, again, harkens back all the way here to this particular passage about the word of the Lord will last forever. And so just as we see fading grass and even fading humanity, we have to recognize that we really want to focus on those things which will last forever, those things which are permanent. And just another picture here. Here's a picture from the Judean wilderness, which if you are up close or have this on your computer, you can see just a little bit over here, we still have just a little bit of grass, which is about ready to fade like all the others that have been hit by the sun. And so it's just a reminder that they could very quickly understand that. If you've um, ever grown up in uh, Northern California, as I did, one of the things my mother used to say is, I had to get used to the hills turning brown, you know, in Northern California. And if you're in Israel, you have to get used to the green in the spring turning brown. And again, just a reminder there that all this grass under the heat of the sun in the Judean wilderness is going to fade away. And that's why you have a lot of the Bedouins moving the sheep. They keep looking for places where there's still grass because it eventually fades away. And this is just an illustration of even the frailty of humanity, of the fact that in some respects we have to recognize who holds the power of life and death and who ultimately is eternal. God is eternal. His word is eternal. People are eternal. But these earth suits we're on aren't eternal, and they will fade just like the grass as well. Then it goes on in verse 8 uh, to talk about the fact that he doesn't end then with human weakness. That could be kind of a downer. But the idea of the eternal words of God's promise. And then again, for hearkening back to Jesus, we have now a focus here on the fact that here he speaks new life to his children. And I'm always looking for places to connect what we do here in the examine class to what uh, Pastor Graham and Pastor um, Jared uh, Stevens is doing in Hebrews 1.1. 
1 is another nice connection between what we're studying here in Isaiah 40 and what we've been studying there in the book of Hebrews. And then finally, of course, we see the New Testament fulfillment of this, you know, that those who call on his name will be saved and we will walk in the newness of life which is offered to us in the gospel. See that in John 3.16, of course, and also in Romans 6, verse 4. So just again, a look at that message as well. Let's pick up now from a little bit further because we go from verse 9 to verse 26. This is a fairly significant section here. But again, this one is full of questions. If you've ever read the book of Job, especially some of the last chapters, Job is asking, um, or God is asking Job, I guess I should say. First, Job is asking God why this is, but mostly God is asking Job, were you there when I actually created the world? And we have the same kind of questions being asked here. Look at verse 13, for example. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? In other words, when God needs some advice, does he go to us or perhaps more accurately, when we need advice, when we need counsel, we go to him. Look at verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Um, I love this. Go to verse 22, for example, here. These are some sections I've marked, at least in my Bible. It is he, that is God, who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Ever been in a tall building looking down? You know, people look like ants. Ever been in an airplane looking down? You know, the advantage we have of being in tall places or being up above, we can kind of see what it must be like for God to look down. You know, you have people down here that, from God's point of view, look like ants, and we're shaking our fist at God. And God's like, seriously? You know, they're like grasshoppers, you know. You can imagine if you saw grasshoppers getting angry at you, you go, really? You know, (laughs) what is that all about? But nevertheless, let me continue on here. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, a great testimony of creation there and spreads them like a tent to dwell in and so all sorts of key passages here in which God reveals his power and his rule over the heavens and earth this is a great creation message here but let's look at that for verse uh, 9 first of all uh, we see that Isaiah calls out God's chosen that would be the people in Israel to rise up with shouts of praise and adoration why? because God is powerful God is is omnipotent Um, and then he begins to point in particular to Zion and to Jerusalem as witnesses to God's glory and love and then the people are to shout out uh, to those who are no longer separated from God just a great rejoicing that can take place and even Judah the southern kingdom here can shout out in full confidence as they rest in God's favor and so now from verse 12 and following I read just a few of those here we have these rhetorical questions. God asks, were you there when I created this? Are you aware of what I do? Uh, Do I come to you for counsel? Just some really good questions here. And in each case, after the question comes an affirmation that God is the ruler of all the people and all the nations. And it concludes then with a focus on God's singular power over everything. 
Indeed, whether that's idols, which we can see are made by human hands, or whether it's heavenly beings, which were created by him, he is the creator of all. God created all things, sustains all things, is capable of both shaping those individuals, but also standing apart from them as well. He created all things, but he is totally separate from his creation. If you want to put a key word down there too, uh, this is a Latin phrase, it's creation ex nihilo wouldn't be a good Kirby Anderson talk without at least one Latin phrase, ex nihilo, out of nothing. Uh, God is separate from his creation. This week I'm going to be teaching up at Canicut. One of the things I teach is about Hinduism and Buddhism, but there is the idea that God is here. God is part of this. And so, uh, you know, there's God in the rocks and the trees, and then it leads to God is in you and is me. And so it's the idea of human divinity. But that's not what the scriptures teach. They teach that God is separate from his creation. He created it out of nothing and it is separate from him. He created the mountains, the hills, the waters, the skies and he's not to be confused with those things. You know, we certainly want to be good stewards of the creation but we don't think that God is in the trees. We don't think God is here other than, of course, in the power of the Holy Spirit as we accept the Lord and so that's a different kind of view. And most importantly here God's power extends, look at verse 13, over his limitless being. God is not limited to one geographical area. Recognizes Isaiah's writing this, almost all of the pagan heretical ideas around him believe that there was a God of the trees, there was a God of the land, there's a God of the water, there's a God of the moon, there's a God of the sun, and he's trying to illustrate here, no, God is over all of this. He doesn't have a zip code, he doesn't have a geographical location, because we believe in the omnipresent of God as well, and he also has absolute knowledge, verse 14, over all things as well. As I just mentioned here, verse 15 points out that he doesn't have a geographical location. We look at that today and go, well, of course. But if you were um, around the Hittites, the Amorites, uh, the Babylonians, um, the Persians, and others, you would find that they did believe that there was God of that particular region. But he's not a local deity with limited power. He stands infinitely greater than all the nations, all the supposed gods, and all human powers, as he says, are just like a drop in the bucket, just a speck uh, to understand. He sits above in the absolute authority of heaven, and as I said in verse 22, just love this, you know, he looks at us perhaps almost like we would look at insects outside as we are walking to our cars today. Uh, No insect is capable of creating and shaping its entire ecosystem. Likewise, we're not able to create the world around us. We are dependent upon him, even though we think that we have a lot more dominion and control, which we are admonished to actually exercise, but at the same time, we recognize that ultimately God is kingdom, uh, ruling over all those kingdoms as well. No equal in creation and challenges them to even try to find uh, someone else that would rival God's greatness. Of course, the implication is that he does not. 
So then as we come to the New Testament, we see the implication of that. Because in Ephesians here, Paul, as he's writing to the church in Ephesus, reminds us that Jesus is sitting in the exalted power, sitting at the right hand of God, far above all other powers. And then we go to Matthew 9, where Jesus talks about uh, God's greatness to the world. Uh, We also see the resurrection of the dead in 1 Corinthians 6, and even the uh, prediction of the return of the Lord in Matthew 24 and Mark 13. So we see in the New Testament the fulfillment of some of the things we read here in Isaiah 40. So let me now come to what I would think would be the most famous passages in the book of Isaiah, at least in chapter 40. Some of you may even have a a poster or a particular verse or two that talks about these particular passages because let's start in verse 28 maybe. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. A very famous passage indeed, and no doubt to perhaps some of you have posters or uh, various, uh, um, you know, maybe knickknacks or something like that that have that very famous page. But again, the focus here is that as we've been looking at God's greatness and God's power displayed over creation, then we also seem that when we seem like life is never going to get any better, when we go through some kind of difficulty or challenge, here Isaiah challenges us to remember God's greatness, to prepare and to proclaim God's goodness around the world. When worry arises, remember that God never changes. He is everlasting. When fears arise, we should write again that God never grows tired. When you think no one understands your life, God possesses perfect knowledge. He knows all things. When you feel weak, cry out to God for strength. And that, of course, is the conclusion here. And I love this because it says, Even youth shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted. So it doesn't matter whether you're old, as many of us in the room are now old, um, or young, and we have a couple of youngsters in the room here as well, there will be a time we'll be exhausted. And so the conclusion is, wherever you find yourself, whatever the circumstances, the admonition is to trust in God and to really practice waiting on the Lord. Now, waiting doesn't mean that you sit in your rocking chair and not do anything, but waiting means an anxious, if you will, expectation that he's going to do something. To wait on the Lord doesn't mean just waiting around, waiting for time to pass, but as we talked about last week, it's this kind of expectation, uh, the expectation that we in the New Testament have, the expectation that today could be the day. What do we mean by that? Today could be the day when the Lord returns. 
Today could be the last day we have on earth. And whether the Lord returns in our lifetime or not, there will be a day when we will have our last day on earth. Um, and so we will go to meet him either through death or through the rapture. And so that's kind of this idea of the anxious expectation we should have. And his timing is perfect. His revealed time is very important to us. And again, he offers his reserves immeasurable reserves of strength to accomplish the plans that he has. And he grants us exactly what we need. And if nothing else, this is an opportunity where it talks about, don't you love this, mount up, run, and walk. So sometimes there's just a time when you just need to mount up. That's a good Texas phrase, isn't it? Mount up on that horse, ride off, you know, or go and run towards whatever you need to do or walk. Uh, So whatever it might be, this is the admonition for us that if we're going to be effective for him, we need to depend upon his resources. A lot more I could cover in Isaiah 40, but I wanted just before we end to uh, equip you because one of the questions was, you know, how can I find some good election resources? I'm not going to tell you how to vote, but I'm going to give you some really helpful hints on where to find some of that. If you haven't picked up this little card, I think we'll still keep some at the table there, and they certainly have them over there in Main Street, and it gives you some of the links, but not knowing that we had some of this on the card, I wanted to take a few minutes to help you understand where you can find information. Everybody with me? Um, Have a chance to vote tomorrow, if you'd like, um, or otherwise November 6th is the day. Okay, for those of you in Collin County, how do I get this information? On the bottom of the sheet, you'll actually see that you can go to, you can just type in election, Collin County, your Google will take you right there, and it's going to give you all sorts of information that you can see. So that's what it looks like if you're in Collin County. Some of you are in Denton County, so yours has a little bit of nicer looking graph, but it has the same kind of material. So as you go there, it will provide you with lots of information. Okay, let's look at some of it. The first thing is, is it will provide you with a sample ballot. Now, some of you might say, I'm not sure I know which precinct I'm in. Well, the good news is they give you a map and you can scan around and find which precinct you are. But if you have a voter registration card, you can look on that one. So here's a sample ballot. And so it will show you exactly what you will see when you go in to vote. Most of you are going to be voting in precincts where you will vote electronically. So it will look slightly different on the machine. But nevertheless, you can actually go through and see the individuals on the ballot. This is two pages. You know, there's a lot of individuals that you'll have a chance to vote for. We have a U.S. Senate race. Of course, you have a congressional race. You have a state senator. You have a state representative. Then you have everything from the Circuit Court of Appeals judges. You have the county judges. Of course, you have all the statewide races. You have the governor, lieutenant governor. Today, we had the attorney general in here as well. You have the secretary of state, agricultural commission, land commissioner. And after a while, you're going to say, there's about three dozen individuals that I can vote for. Okay, what am I going to do? How am I going to get information so that I can cast an intelligent vote? Well, the first thing I might recommend is, and I don't think that's on the sheet here, so this may be something you want to put in your notes. There is what's called I Vote, a voter guide, the I Voter Guide. It's done by a good friend of mine, interestingly enough, that uh, has pulled together all of this information. If you find that you want a link, I also, of course, do a show called Point of View, and if you go to pointofview.net, 
net and you click on the middle section there, we also have a link to iVoter Guide. Now, when I go to iVoter Guide, the first thing it asks me is my zip code. If you know your zip code, you're in. Because then what you'll see is it hosts all sorts of things. I'll just pick one of these, a Senate race here. And what it has is that it has, first of all, individuals. And so you got, of course, Ted Cruz, and you have Representative O'Rourke, and you also have Neil um, um, Dykeman, I blank out his name sometimes. And it also, first of all, gives you a rating. And, you know, from, um, I guess you can't, can't seem to get to do anymore, but from very conservative for Ted Cruz to very liberal to um, Robert uh, Francis O'Rourke, and you say, okay, well, I'm not sure I agree with that, or I want to see how they came to that. Well, each one of these are clickable, so then you can go and look at each individual as it's broken down. Let me just use um, this particular one. I'll use Ted Cruz as an illustration. And so here, how did they come up with this? Well, first of all, you have a panel evaluation. They have a group of individuals that sit together, and they evaluate all the votes these individuals have made. In the case of Ted Cruz, it's the votes he's made in the U.S. Senate. In the case of uh, Robert uh, Francis O'Rourke, the votes he made in Congress, or in some cases when he was in the city council there in El Paso. And you might say, okay, but why should I accept that? You don't have to, because you can then go down and see that then they show how they voted, how their money was given, all sorts of other things, so you can follow that as well. You also will notice over here on the left hand side, it also tells you which groups have endorsed them. In the case of Ted Cruz, they tend to be fairly conservative groups. American Family Association, Family Research Council, Eagle Forum, and whatever. And the same thing, you can see that for uh, Congressman O'Rourke. So you can actually see who uh, actually has endorsed them. And that is helpful as you work your way down, because when you get to judges, for example, we introduced uh, Jim Pickle today, who's running against uh, Ken Moberg. By the way, I know both of them. I know both the Republican and the Democrat running in that particular race. Uh, Moberg actually came to my uh, daughter's wedding, interestingly enough, and I've known Jim Pickle for years, sat in meetings with him, so I know both of those individuals. But you realize if they're running for judge, they're probably not going to fill out a survey. They're not going to tell you how they would vote on that. So sometimes what's helpful is to see how the panel evaluates them, but also to see who has endorsed them and who has provided money. And if you've got one group that's receiving endorsement and maybe funding from, you know, uh, various action groups that are conservative or a, another group uh, which might be Planned Parenthood or Emily's List or NARAL endorsing them. That tells you a little bit about how they stand on issues like abortion, even if they don't fill out the surveys. So you can just kind of work your way down and see how these individuals have voted, how other people have evaluated them, and who has endorsed them. So that gives you quite a bit of information. By the way, I might mention, I don't know any candidate that doesn't at least have a, either a website or a Facebook page. So you can also go to their Facebook page and see who's endorsed them and things like that. They might say, okay, where to vote? Well, good news is, again, if you know what your zip code, it will give you where you can vote. And uh, that's really important because sometimes it'll tell you some other things that you need to know about in terms of voting. So all of that's at the iVoter Guide material. But as you go down, you're going to say, you know, we go down to about maybe those people on the State Board of Education, but I need some more. I, you know, I want to I go further down the ballot. And that's where I would recommend, well, first of all, 
mention it also tells you what to bring to vote you know you do need to have some kind of voter ID we do have one judge here in the state of Texas has said he thought the voter ID is discriminatory and I'm thinking you need a ID to get on an airplane you need an ID to buy liquor you need if you're young an ID to even buy cigarettes you need sometimes an ID to buy cough medicine you need, you, if you're going to sell a house you need ID if you're going to buy a house you're going to need an ID if you're going to buy a car you need an ID if you're going to drive a car you need an ID but anyway but here are all the different things that you can use to identify yourself if you don't have any of those then there you can even get a provisional ballot so it's really not that difficult but let me go on to the next one because some of you might be saying okay this helps me in the top races but I want to know a little bit more about the further down races and it turns out that uh, the family policy group that's associated with focus on the family that's called Texas Values this is Texas Value Action they have a free voters guide so you can go to Texas Values and now that goes down a lot deeper that will tell you at least about some of the judicial races and some things like that so you can go there and they have an outstanding voters guide in matter of fact Texas Values um, is having a wonderful banquet in November uh, Michelle Bachman is speaking there uh, Kelly Shackelford is and I'm the MC, uh, so some of you might even want to go. And uh, I think they've done a, a very good job of helping you go further down the ballot and learning a little bit more. They have every one of the state Senate races, every one of the state House races. We have 31 Texas senators and 150 Texas representatives, and you had a chance to see a few of them here in the state of Texas. So let me give you an example. Uh, two of the people you saw stand up there, you have first. First of all, Angela Paxton, who she's running against, and you can see very conservative, very liberal. If, you know, pro-life issues are the issue, you can follow that. Um, or if indeed maybe even the whole LGBT issue is, and, you know, her opponent is a very prominent LGBT individual. Matter of fact, one of the ones that wanted to sue the state of Texas so he could marry his partner. So you can begin to see where they stand on moral issues and things of that nature. And then Jeff Leach, he stood up there. You can see his opponent it there and again those are clickable so you can go and see how the individual votes are and so some of these individuals uh, have a voting record others have filled out surveys and if they don't they at least have some information about who's endorsed them so that gives you quite a bit of information to uh, kind of work your way through um, but some of you might say okay but I still don't know the district clerk the district judge something like that you saw Mike Buster stand up there Mike Buster actually once a year puts out a list of individuals he endorses and he actually has a list that goes from state senator all the way down to our U.S. senator all the way down to almost like dog catcher. He's even, you know, given his endorsement for the county clerk if he'd want to see some of those. So if you're interested at all, you could actually see if he would want to give that list to you. He has mailed it to some of us and that's an example of individuals that he has endorsed. But again, you can also go on in the individual website and I've done that before and see if there's some people that I would know that have endorsed them. 
Yes, I've endorsed at least three or four candidates this year, so you can see my name on a few of those. But nevertheless, that just gives you some more information, I would think. Finally, just before we end, let me just mention that one of the things that you will probably want to have access to is no matter who is elected in November, uh, starting in January, those are the individuals that will be representing you. And you might say, I've never really understood exactly who represents me. I'd like to admit that, but I found before that if I were go out here with a microphone right now and say, can you name your state senator? Can you name your state representative? A lot of people start looking at their shoes. You know, they, they can't do that. And so the good news is, this is something that I appreciate what Google has done because they have a link to it. If you just type on Google, because after all, Google knows all, who represents me? What pops up if you can come up with your zip code? And lots of times it already knows where you are. This gives you your two United States senators and that's clickable so you could actually send those two U.S. senators an email. It gives your member of Congress, your representative, it gives your state senator, your state representative, your state board of education. So at any point in time, there's no excuse for you not looking for ways in which you could communicate both to the federal level and the state level individuals uh, that might want to solicit your opinion. So again, if nothing else, clicking on who represents me is just a great other way in which you can find out who represents you. Everybody ready to go? Okay, well, you can start voting tomorrow. If not, um, the day to vote is Tuesday, November 6th. And, uh, oh, I thought it would, since I got another minute. I was going to ignore that, but I look at my clock and I actually have a few minutes. Some of you, every once in a while, say, how much does my vote really count? I'm going to just tell you two stories just from the state of Texas. Um, you've all heard me tell the story before of my good friend Penny Pullen, who when she ran for re-election, um, after they counted all the votes, it was a tie in Chicago. An absolute tie. Didn't know what to do. Now we've had a few other of those that happened. So they went in and the judge flipped a coin. She lost. And so she was not re-elected as an incumbent. Then, here's the rest of the story, she went to church that Sunday and ran into at least three dozen people that said, oh, Penny, if I'd known it was going to be so close, I would have voted. And if just one of her friends had voted for her, she would still be serving in the uh, Illinois legislature. But I don't have to go to Illinois to talk about close votes. Let's look at two of them real close there. On the left-hand side is uh, Matt Rinaldi. You might remember Matt Rinaldi. Um, He almost got in a fight on the Texas House of Representatives. Remember when that uh, almost took place? Because at one point when you had people protesting outside, um, at one point he just said into the microphone, you know, I'm not sure how many of those protesters are even citizens of the United States. I'm going to, and he was just kidding, I'm going to call ICE, that is Immigration and Customs Enforcement, to check out whether they are. Well, there's some of the Hispanic people came up to him and, you know, he plays hockey and he said, you know, when you're in hockey, every once in a while you get checked. He said, I just tightened up because I just knew somebody was going to hit me. But nevertheless, he didn't get hit, but it, it was really controversial in the last legislature. But if you look on the screen here, you can see that he was re-elected in the Texas House in District 115 by what? 1,100 136 votes. But the closest one we had last time, um, interestingly enough, is Briscoe Kane, who 
actually defeated an incumbent. Uh, first, by he was able to make it into the runoff by 714 votes. He won in the runoff by 23 votes, uh, which I think is kind of interesting. Is that too close for comfort? By the way, if you're not familiar with him, he was voted, I think, last year the most conservative uh, Texas House member. Uh, Van Taylor was voted the most conservative uh, Texas Senate. Interesting enough, but you can see 23 votes. That is pretty close. And that is in a presidential election. A much smaller and lower percentage of people vote during midterms. So you can see your vote will have a tremendous impact. So don't ever say one vote doesn't count. Just ask Briscoe King. He got in by 23 votes. Parker? 